This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. With me today is Kelly Willis, Managing Director of Strategic Initiatives at Malaria No More, to discuss the final synthesis report of the IPCC sixth assessment cycle, as well as her recent trip to Abu Dhabi, where she attended a climate health summit meeting in preparation for the December IPCC COP26, also taking place in the UAE. Kelly, welcome to the program. Thank you, David. I'm glad to be here and Malaria No More appreciates the opportunity to be on your podcast. Oh, you're very welcome. Kelly's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, since this is at least my 35th climate-related podcast, listeners are aware of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. This past March 20th, the IPCC published its last AR6 document, a summary report that integrates the main findings of the three sixth assessment work group reports published over the last 18 months. The report has been formally termed the last warning since the IPCC seventh assessment work will not begin until uh, later this year and will likely not publish anything until after 2030, at which time we'll know whether we have succeeded or not in reducing CO2 emissions by approximately 40%. In order to limit average global warming to the preferred Paris Climate Accord goal of 1.5 degrees Celsius. Not surprisingly, the summary report makes for a grim reading. I'll just note one, two sentences uh, in in section C.1. Quote, there is a rapidly closing window of opportunity to secure a livable and sustainable future for all. The choices and actions implemented in this decade will have impacts now and for thousands of years. Close quote. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres termed the report, quote-unquote, a clarion call to massively fast-track climate efforts by every country, every sector, and on every time frame. He said, quote, the 1.5 degree limit is achievable, but it will take a quantum leap in climate action. As it relates to rich countries, he argued they must reach net zero as close as possible to 2040. And lastly, I'll note an excellent summary of the AR6 full synthesis report was published in late March by Carbon Brief. I'll make two related notes. The report just out by the Rainforest Action Network and others found fossil fuel financing by the world's 60 banks reached, believe it or not, $5.5 trillion over the past seven years, or since the 15 climate, uh, Paris Climate Accord, rather, and a potentially strong Pacific El Nino effect may arrive later this summer, potentially causing global temperatures to pass 1.5 C average warming for, let's hope, a temporary period. So with all that, again with me to discuss the IPCC report, and again her recent trip to the UAE, is Kelly Willis. So a bit longer than I had uh, planned um, in any event. <laughs> so okay, let's... Still not as... Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I was going to say still not as long as the 3,000 pages or so contained in the, right, she yes. called it, the Grim Read. <laughs> yes. Um, let's start with, uh, and you could say further about this, but since uh, malaria is relevant here, because obviously with a warming planet, 
this is the increase in vector-borne diseases, of course. Uh, malaria is prominent. Something like there are 250 million cases worldwide, 100-plus countries. Um, residents of 100-plus countries are exposed. Uh, most important, deadly tropical mosquito-borne parasite. So if you could tell me just briefly about, as we start, uh, your, your organization, Malaria No More. Yes, yeah, certainly. Thank you. And it, it's interesting that you say, obviously, malaria is related. I think as, as recently as just a few years ago, that wouldn't have been quite so obvious. By now, your listeners are probably aware that malaria is a highly climate-sensitive infectious disease. Uh, and uh, we uh, have you know, uncovered that along with researchers worldwide over the past couple decades, but it's only now that people are finally putting a fine point on that. On that. Um, just a word about Malaria No More. I mean, we're an organization founded about 17 years ago uh, to mobilize resources, political will, and innovation to end malaria in our lifetime. And we've seen remarkable traction and success over the past 15 years or so. Uh, millions of lives saved, uh, many more millions uh, billions of, of cases, malaria cases averted, and the potential to eradicate malaria over the next 15 to 20 years is very real now. So we're excited about that. On the other hand, funding for malaria elimination, you know, greatly accelerated over the past 20 years or so, and then has, you know, somewhat, you know, plat reached a plateau um, it's in competition with so many other priorities worldwide, obviously. And so as an organization dedicated to committing the, the needed resources for malaria elimination, we've had to get creative about how we do that. Um, so we've launched a, a health finance coalition, which looks at blended finance mechanisms, how we can capture some you know, alternative capital and private sector resources to contribute to the malaria fight. And uh, recently, we've also started exploring what we call malaria adjacencies, um, major challenges on a global scale that have relevance or influence on malaria's um, transmission and elimination. And climate change is, of course, one of the most important ones. So we started our work in climate change a few years ago, primarily to look at what additional threats to our progress climate change was going to cause. And you mentioned some of those statistics, um, your listeners probably understand that, uh, you know, it's, it's a very complex set of interconnected forces that, that drive malaria transmission as a result of global warming. It's, it's the rising temperatures, generally speaking, but it's also changing weather patterns and seasonality, and then, of course, extreme weather events. So as temperatures rise, the mosquitoes that carry malaria and for that matter, the mosquitoes that carry dengue, Zika, encephalitis, all kinds of vector-borne diseases, their range increases. Um, it puts vulnerable communities at risk of malaria where they weren't previously. That means they're not sleeping under bed nets and taking other, you know, common precautions to prevent uh, getting malaria. And it also means that healthcare workers aren't trained in how to diagnose fevers appropriately and how to treat malaria cases. Um, the changing seasonality is very complex. It increases the cost to respond effectively to malaria outbreaks because we can't rely on those seasonal trends that we have for decades for sort of the timing of commodity procurement or healthcare worker deployment. 
um, or the timing of major interventions also geared toward prevention. So that's a complicating force. But then one of the more visible uh, ways that climate change is impacting malaria outbreaks now is also as a result of hydrometeorologic disasters. So in a prolonged flood environment, like we saw in Pakistan last year and was covered pretty well in the media, you see major and rapid upticks in the outbreaks of uh, malaria. And for that matter, cholera, dengue, um, a lot of uh, vector and food and waterborne disease. So climate change has a huge impact on malaria. And like I said, that's where we started. We launched the initiative called Forecasting Healthy Futures a few years ago. And it was designed to do two things. First, just to elevate people's understanding of this dimension. Um, and also more broadly about the impacts on human health of climate change, but then also to accelerate innovation about how can we use new technologies, artificial intelligence and its sophisticated climate data to develop a better understanding early warning systems and be able to deploy solutions where they're needed most urgently. And as soon as we got a little bit into this work, we, we realized that, you know, human health was sort of conspicuously absent from a lot of the climate or the, the yeah the climate agenda um, you know we kind of talk in abstractions about health systems nature systems biologic systems but very rarely in the UNFCCC reports and negotiations were we talking specifically about the various ways that climate change impacts health and of course malaria is just one example of an, an enormous array of, of health and disease conditions that are impacted by climate change. And since then, we've been working as Forecasting Healthy Futures to really, again, elevate the dialogue and discussion negotiations around this climate health nexus, and at the same time, accelerate investment in the deployment of existing global health interventions that can combat those unique effects of climate change on health, and drive innovation for the use of very sophisticated technologies that can respond more more precisely. Well, thank thank. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Uh, no, go ahead. Thank you for that. I'll just note. Um, I don't think I, you stated so. Malaria deaths globally are north of six hundred thousand. Um, I, I thought interestingly, not surprisingly, there are malaria deaths in the U.S. And I was surprised to learn that there are cases. Um, uh, there's a fair amount of prevalence of these cases in New Jersey, New York, and Maryland, which I was surprised to learn. Um, I will say, uh, I appreciate you noting Pakistan, uh, relative to, um, extreme weather. Uh, what happened last year, I have to say, is truly jaw-dropping. They received in one month, uh, 700% of their annual rainfall, which was so intense it actually melted their adobe or their brick adobe or clay homes in many instances. So uh speaking of and then I really did appreciate your point. I'll make a third quick one. Uh, your point about not connecting the dots. I, I, I cite this frequently. You probably read it yourself, the twenty twenty Lancet Countdown Report uh drew this conclusion that and I'm quoting climate change continues to be framed in ways that pay little attention to its health dimensions, which is unbelievable to me, um, how we don't connect the dots uh, immediately. So uh, uh, thank you for that. I will say too, relative to transmission, just lastly, quickly, because this is actually part of the summary uh, out in March, 
And I, I found this, I was aware of this, but I didn't think it was uh, this pronounced. One of the conclusions was that, um, and there's high confidence for this, that half of all species assessed globally have shifted polewards uh, or to higher elevations, um, obviously because uh, the further north you go, the cooler it is. But that is that is unbelievable. Half of all species that were studied have have moved north. So that explains uh, in part where malaria is headed, literally. That was a shocking uh, observation in the report. I agree. And then the other half of species that haven't shifted have either benefited from the warming in some in some instances mm-hmm. and migrated. And that's what you'll see more often with um, the Anopheles mosquito that carries malaria is that you know, more temperate zones like the highlands in Ethiopia that were notoriously malaria-free until recently are now suitable habitats for the Anopheles mosquito. And so it's, it's almost the opposite. Um, and then, you know, the rest of those other half of the species, you know, maybe it's not that large, but a huge number have perished um, as a res- as an result of an inability to migrate or to find suitable habitat. So it really is shocking that whole section in the report. David, I want to just touch on a couple things that you cited there. Um, I mean, malaria cases in the U.S. are almost always contracted abroad. And so, you know, the, the patient hasn't become ill until they return home from travel or till they reach the U.S., we don't have any, you know, transmission occurring in the U.S. yet, and there's really not much reason to suspect there will be anytime soon. So, but that doesn't mean that we're not going to be increasingly vulnerable to Zika, for example, and encephalitis, tick-borne disease like Lyme, Lyme disease. So we're not off the hook there, but malaria isn't really something we need to worry about in the very near term. In the context of so many other things to worry about, <laughs> it's nice to take that one off the plate. Uh, right, and if, I, if, if dengue wasn't worrisome enough in the, in the U.S. Exactly, it certainly should be, um, you know, particularly because whereas malaria is a preventable and treatable disease that we just haven't been able to mobilize the resources, technologies, and, you know, political will to end uh, dengue until very recently, there was no treatment at all for it. Uh, so in, in some ways, it's a more more worrisome uh, disease. Mm-hmm. Just just to touch on that, the, the Pakistan and that massive amount of rainfall that they received, and thanks for that statistic, which I wouldn't have known. I'm I'm speaking to you from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where a similar, yes, although yes. Less, less destructive, two feet happened over the past week. Yeah, just just shocking. And I think, you know, for how much longer will we continue to be surprised by these extreme weather events? Another, you know, language that's in in the um, in the IPCC report says farther and farther away from what we today consider normal, normal habitat environment and climate and weather conditions. And I think, you know, that's one of the reasons that that the report is so chilling. Um, Of course, you know, the reasons that the report cites, you know, there's sort of three points in terms of the lack of our, our, our lack of success on the mitigation front. I mean, one, even if we you know, add up all of the nationally determined contributions, the NDC commitments that have been made, it would be inadequate to keep, you know, to to limit 
global warming to the 1.5 percent. Um, but of course, our implementation rates and trends are nowhere near those NDCs yet. So that's the implementation gap that's talked about in the report. And then furthermore, of course, most of the report is characterized by the observation that the impacts of every degree of warming or every increment of warming are so much greater than we knew just a few years ago. So not only are we not on track to limit to 1.5, but the impact of a 1.5 degree Celsius warming will be that much more extreme on all sorts of systems that are mentioned. And then, of course, coming back to, yes, um, the Lancet Countdown and Marina Romanello gave one of the keynote presentations at our recent Forecasting Healthy Futures Global Summit. You mentioned uh, the event that was held in Abu Dhabi in the middle of March. That's actually an event that Forecasting Healthy Futures convened. Um, in the UAE to take advantage of the fact that the, that country will be hosting this year's climate change conference in late November and December. And we were successful in securing the active engagement of the COP28 planning team in that event, which was phenomenal to have those decision makers uh, with us for two and a half days of discussion hearing from health experts all over the world about the effects of climate change we're feeling already today, talking about the range of technologies and interventions that we can work toward uh, developing into scalable solutions to address some of these concerns, um, and then really kind of honing in on some of the policy implications and what we need to have happen in the lead up to COP so that we can announce um, some health uh, investments in a completely new uh, quantum than what we've seen in the past. We had the um, director general of the COP28 team uh, with us to make remarks on the second day of the summit. And one of the things that he pointed out is just how woefully inadequate the current investment in the health systems in the climate context are today. They actually make up less than 2% of all climate adaptation funds that are directed toward health. And that means that they are less than half of 1% of all climate spend right now are focused on the health sector. And as you pointed out, there is a certain absurdity to that when uh, the primary reason that we care about um, the you know, survival of our planet is so that we can live in good health and uh, well-being. Uh, and so we're, we're trying to remedy that disconnect and bring those voices together and find real constructive ways to save, you know, millions of lives now uh, and preserve health systems that can, you know, provide uh, care to the most vulnerable uh, in the future. So, yeah, thank you. Um, let's stay with Abu Dhabi, but... but um relative to the, the health dimension of the IPC and these COP discussions. But I do want to note relative to adaptation, uh, there's a lot of discussion in IPCC as it relates to soft and hard limits relative mm-hmm. to um, uh, the extent to which both humans and natural systems can adapt. Uh, and in fact, in several places, uh, there's discussions about ecosystems or increasing numbers of ecosystems approaching, uh, their phrases, approaching irreversibility, uh, mm-hmm. meaning that as they, as they become increasingly compromised, uh, it's difficult, if not impossible, to sort of uh, 
re-engineer them, which is what we would have to do so that they could persist, I guess, for lack of a better word. Let me, I, I, let, let me stay with um, your, your discussions, your two-day meeting, your discussions. What's your expectation relative to this subtopic at upcoming COP, meaning uh, human health, let's just phrase it as HHS would say, uh, which is their mission is supposed to be to ensure the health and well-being of all Americans. Um, so what, what, what's your sense of where this, how this discussion will, uh, this health dimension will evolve? Yeah, well, we're, we, we've set our expectations and aspirations pretty high. Um, Majid El Sawaidi, the Director General of COP28, announced that this year's COP will have, for the first time ever, a health day. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's sort of the manifestation of UAE's resolve to embrace um, the sort of missing element of mm-hmm. you know, the reason that we should care most about climate change is that it puts our human health in, in major jeopardy. So we got off to a great start with that proclamation at the summit that we convened, which was really exciting. And then we spent some really good quality time with the team to sort of unpack you know, Majid al Sawaidi made it very clear that he doesn't want to have a health day that's just, you know, a health day in name only mm-hmm. uh, and doesn't have some real robust and actionable and investable ideas put forth. So we've got a few work streams resulting from those conversations that we're, we're supporting the health steering group for COP28 um, to progress. One is you know, how can we create an investment framework that makes it easy to determine how, to what extent, adaptation, funding, financing commitments uh, contribute to climate resilient health systems? Uh, so we've got a framework that we've been working to uh, socialize with partners and, and technical agencies and policymakers, and in particular, working on closely with the World Bank that kind of helps to break that down. Where are those 3.3 billion most most vulnerable people that the IPCC report mm-hmm. talks about? In what parts of those frontline countries, as we like to call them, are folks most vulnerable to the effects, let's say, of extreme weather event? Um, to what extent does any investment target those most vulnerable frontline communities and geographies with interventions that are universal, scalable, have the absorption capacity to absorb billions of dollars in investment and can use it immediately to save tens of millions of lives and create stronger systems and less vulnerability there. So you talked a little bit about the soft and hard limits. The hard limits in the healthcare sector, we don't have to, you know, we, we are, we're not up against those yet because we haven't even invested adequately mm-hmm. in the technologies and interventions that are available to us today. So, for example, those upticks we saw in malaria, dengue, cholera in the flooding, following the flooding in Pakistan, um, could have been avoided if we had appropriately scaled seasonal malaria chemo prevention, which is, you know, a, 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 a therapy we have available to us now to the extent that we can predict when the risk of outbreak is greatest. There are new genetically modified mosquitoes and just naturally occurring bacteria that we can uh, that we can insert in mosquito populations to prevent the transmission of dengue. If we had used the Wolbachia technology to its full extent, we wouldn't have seen those upticks in dengue. 
Similarly, there's advances in inline chlorination processes that are very low cost and effective ways to ensure safe drinking water sources for people following hydrometeorologic disasters, but also, you know, on more routine access to safe drinking water. So we're, we're nowhere near those sort of hard limits. And in fact, we haven't even come up against well, some of the soft limits terminology refers more to the policy and institution and financing uh, ceiling. And so that's what we're out to, to break that ceiling. So that's one whole work stream is focused on let's create an, a framework for investment and let's go out and mobilize billions of dollars against that framework, targeting the most vulnerable populations, frontline communities that are dealing most with the impact of climate change, which, as we all know, are those communities least responsible for right, the global right. warming that's creating the problem. And that's, that's really where a lot of our focus is going to be in the lead up to COP. We want to see a major announcement to fix that 2% of adaptation funding going to the health sector um, to multiply that by many times in time for the Dubai Expo City event. But we also need to continue to in increase awareness and so support for embracing climate health solutions. We know that, and I think the IPCC report talks about this as well, the extent to which civil society, political leaders, activists, youth voices are you know, verbal, active, and informed really does have an impact on policy and investment decisions in wealthier countries and elsewhere. So we need to get everyone, you know, singing from the same songbook, so to speak, and in particular, capture the voices of the youth advocates who are so passionate in their, in their, in articulating the need for for more aggressive action to counter climate change and to invest in protecting health systems. So we've got a whole series of events and campaigns that are designed to do that, to get, um, you know, a common lexicon out there. So again, back to this sort of siloed approach and the conspicuous absence of health conversation in the climate community, we have to, you know, um, get that language out there and communicate these basic principles to, you know, a whole um, group of people who are passionate advocates, but, but haven't really been thinking along those lines uh, to date. And then we, we've also got some technical work to continue as well. I mentioned artificial intelligence and new data sources. Uh, Forecasting Healthy Futures has developed our own sort of prototype of a malaria prediction and planning tool, which is proving to be incredibly effective, 96% effective, in fact, at predicting upticks in malaria transmission in very, very small geographies. And that's just a very small example of what's soon to be possible with um, the simultaneous increase in computing power and artificial intelligence, machine learning capabilities, alongside this ever-increasing supply of alternative data sources. You know, so we've got very sophisticated satellite imagery that can look at things like human mobility, land use, um, as well as standing water sources, breeding grounds for certain vectors, et cetera. And then we've got, you know, increasing surveillance systems for the epidemiology pieces. And when those things are combined along with social media scraping and, you know, all kinds of new data sources, they create these very powerful intelligence systems and early warning systems that are going to be critical to our success in getting resources where they're mm -hmm. needed and when they're needed to whom. 
So those are the three big things that we hope to see on the on the agenda at, at COP28 later this year. Okay, thank you. I'll, I'll note uh, in this again in the in the March 20 report, uh, between 3.3, as you know, and 3.6 billion are living, and this is the quote, in contexts that are highly vulnerable to climate change. And of course, the majority of this, and this is basically half the world's population, and uh, they're the least contributing generally to uh, greenhouse gas emissions. The report also notes on the per capita issue, 10% of households produce, 10% of households are the highest per cap, amounting to 35% of greenhouse gas emissions. The bottom 50% uh, of households account for between 13 and 15% of total greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so there is this imbalance more generally between rich uh, rich countries and others termed global south countries. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, what else? Uh, I'll go back to the report. What else did you find uh, noteworthy or of interest in in your read of it? Yeah. You know, I think one thing that we didn't touch on is something Please. that the report calls maladaptation. Um, okay. And that is initiatives or investments in short-term adaptation initiatives that, in fact, reinforce or entrench existing inequities is the language that the report uses. So this can be anything from using really expensive forms of irrigation to to provide, you know, um, crop suitability in places that are predicted to have lower rainfall in the future. Mm -hmm. So creating, you know, price inequities and access inequities. And, you know, this is something that's going to be highly relevant, even in the U.S. domestic, um, you know, um, space as we look at, um, you know, inequities in income and access to healthy sources of nutrition. Um, but but it's not always that um, extreme. This can be things like hard flood protection mechanisms, which you know, are ultimately not going to be successful and um, sometimes can even have um, unintended consequences on mitigation aspects. So flooding that's not done in a proper, or excuse me, protections against flooding that's not conducted in truly multi-sectoral teams with experts from multiple sectors weighing in Mm -hmm. can create water flow and new areas of water that, for example, um, you know, propagate breeding of vectors carrying diseases or threaten clean water sources for others. Um, so not only is though are those adaptation funds, um, so to speak, wasted or short term and focused, but they don't adequately incorporate the expertise of multiple sectors. So one of the principles that I didn't mention as one of our major initiatives, but needs to be present in the policy discussion is to make sure that the health sector is represented at every sort of initiative when adaptation um, methods are being considered and investments are made. Some of those also, in an ideal world, those have corresponding mitigation impacts. So you think about things like in urban development, where you're focusing on pedestrian-only green spaces that can reduce some urban heat, can also reduce air pollution from the vehicle traffic that is no longer there, and can increase exercise levels and you know the the general uh, resilience of the of the population in those areas. Um, so that's a good example of why. 
the health sector needs to be present at all of those conversations. And increasingly, we need to, you know, use a lot of a higher degree of scrutiny about adaptation investments to be sure that we're avoiding those kinds of unintended consequences and that we don't fall into this maladaptation category that the IPCC report talks about. Well, I appreciate that. And my immediate thought was, you know, the healthcare sector itself is a huge emitter of greenhouse gas emissions. So sort of ironically, uh, it's relative to uh, being maladapted. Um, but that's a whole other, that's a whole other conversation. So that's a fair point, David. Though, and I, you know, I do want to acknowledge that. And some of the interventions that we're exploring ha- do have that mitigating component as well. So, for example, technology is rapidly accelerating around co- clean cooling technologies. So, as we respond to rising temperatures and the threat of heat exacerbated health conditions. Let's make sure that we're not contributing more to carbon emissions by using the latest and greatest clean cooling technology that can actually, um, you know, have huge reductions in carbon mm-hmm. emissions. Mm-hmm. Super important. And up until recently, that's sort of where the discussion in the health sector was on how do we get to net zero. So there are a number of initiatives that are focused on the solarization of clinics in rural parts of Africa, for mm-hmm. example, uh, things that kind of simultaneously leapfrog the need for energy sources to immediately going to clean energy sources, but then also working on those production and consumption metrics that are ultimately driving driving the problem. Right, right, exactly. I appreciate that. that that's a whole other, the, the flip side of that conversation, of course, or the related conversation or lost, op, to try to avoid lost opportunity costs. And as you know, there's a debate relative to uh, carbon capture and storage because, you know, basically you're just aiding and abetting the continued mining and combustion of fossil fuels. Uh, but we won't go, but we'll leave that. Uh, we're at about our time. So I, I just sort of worked that in at the last uh, moment here. But um, Kelly, I really appreciate this overview of both uh, the final summary report of AR6 and also very much interested and we'll have to follow up on uh, your recent meeting in Abu Dhabi relative to this um, climate component or the healthcare day coming this December. But in sum, thank you again for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, David. It was such a pleasure talking to you, and I look forward to some follow-up. And in the meantime, your listeners should feel free to check out our website at forecastinghealthyfutures.org, where we'll we'll continue to keep that website updated with our events and other efforts in the lead up to COP28. Thank you again. Thanks so much. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.